Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 6, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name again is Rick. I'm author of Spiritual Grit in the Jesus-Centered Life and general editor of the Life-Changing Jesus-Centered Bible. I was just talking to somebody a little bit ago today about the Jesus-Centered Bible. Uh, He had never seen it before, so I was quickly explaining to him what makes this thing different. He would be a pig if he knew what a pig was supposed to be. He's a lover of Jesus, and I told him, this is a Bible that is designed so that no matter where you're reading, it magnetically draws you to Jesus. And you know you're talking to a pig when the eyes light up. So I can't wait to hear him, what his experience is with the Jesus Center Bible. And if you don't have one, I bet your eyes will light up too <laughs> if you see what how this Bible is con- uniquely constructed to to point you always to the heart of Jesus. So... We'll put a link to the Jesus Center Bible on the episode today, and check it out if you don't have one, and if you already do have one, uh, please consider pulling the trigger and giving one to somebody who you know their eyes will light up too once they once they uh, crack this thing open. So right now we're in a two-month pursuit called The Newness of You, and we're again trying to take advantage of uh, the one time during the year when we're actually thinking about who we are, and how we could be a better version of ourselves. And we're trying to do two things here. Deconstruct our normal momentum around this, which is try harder to get better, and reconstruct a more profound and life-changing approach to this that isn't nearly as sweaty. (laughs) And what I mean by that is Jesus had a way of transforming people's lives. And what if we paid attention to the ways in which he did that, and then invited that into our own life, rather than trying harder to get better. What if we offloaded that responsibility to Jesus and invited him to do that? So every episode, we're exploring a different way that Jesus brought transformation into someone's life to slow down, pay attention to his heart, but also to pay attention to our own story and see how our own story might intersect with that encounter that happened so long ago. So today, in this episode, I'm going to dig into something that's really foundational to our hope for transformation. This is a huge, huge foundational piece, um, not only in my life, but in um, how I'm trying to, in my own small way, bring freedom to captives in my life. This thing is huge, and I call it studying how Jesus elevates the heart over the head. Jesus elevating the heart over the head, and at first blush, that doesn't even sound right, right? It Elevating the heart over the head is exactly the reason why so many people think Christians are just a bunch of, you know, sub-academic airheads, <laughs> people that don't really care about actual facts about things, and aren't thoughtful and even intellectual in any way. Like, if you told somebody you're going to go see a counselor— but then you, you, then you said, actually, it's a Christian counselor. Depending on the person that you said that to, their opinion of that counselor would immediately diminish <laughs> if you called them a Christian counselor, because we have developed this reputation of a people that is not interested in deep thought. Or, and it, it's ironic, because some of the deepest thinkers in human history have been followers of Jesus. It'd be so easy to reel off uh, Jacques Ellul, C.S. Lewis, Malcolm Muggeridge, um, you could go on and on with uh, Blaise Pascal. So many of the people that have changed the course of thought in Western culture and even Eastern culture have been followers of Jesus. And, and yet, here we are today, um, hammered for how little we think, or how poorly we think. And here I am saying, Jesus elevates the heart over the head. Well, hang with me here. It'll all make sense by the time, I hope it all makes sense by the time we get finished here. But we are supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and there's no 
you know, prioritization of those in how Jesus lists those. We're supposed to be all in with all of those things, and I'm not going to diminish any of that. However, our addiction to knowledge as the source of transformational growth is a relatively recent social invention. I mean, when you think about what we are told in our culture is the key to our future happiness, if you ask a parent of a teenager, for instance, what is the key to your teenager's future happiness? They will universally say, we've got to get them in the right school with the right education so they can get the right job. I'm not just pulling this out of my hat, and I am wearing a hat, by the way, today. I'm not pulling this out of my hat. I have talked over the last three decades to tens of thousands of parents, and they all give the same answer. The key to happiness is uh, making sure my kid gets in the right school with the right education so they can get the right job, because that's what will make them happy. And what's funny about that is that the parents themselves know this isn't true if they examine their own story. Happiness does not come through that linear path of increased knowledge that's then applied in a career. It just doesn't. And what's more is researchers know that this is intrinsically false. I love to be in a parent training situation where I raise this issue, and everybody says this you know, formula for happiness like they're robots, and then I throw out to them the research, which is the truth is that researchers have discovered that um, people who are living out of their core purpose, so people that know what they're sort of quote-unquote called to be and do, people who live out of that experience the most happiness in life. And it makes no difference their socioeconomic situation, their educational background. If they are doing what they sense they were created to do, they're at their happiest. Now, that's hard to say to parents who have bought into this cultural formula that says better knowledge equals better happiness. It's just not true. So let's explore what it means that Jesus elevates the heart over the head. Let's dive into this. Yesterday, I was having a conversation with a, a man named Kirk, who is, owns his own painting business in Billings, Montana. But he's also, and for the last 10 years, been a part-time youth worker. And he was calling me because he's read some of my books, and he's been to actually some of our training, and really wants to engage his teenagers at a much deeper level, and he's trying to experiment his way forward using what he's learned through reading my books and coming through our training. And one of the things that he wanted to talk to me about was he really, really agreed with something that I talk quite a bit about in, in every book I write, this whole idea of this dichotomy between an application mentality and an attachment mentality when we think about our relationship with Jesus. What I mean by that is the application mentality is uh, understanding a biblical principle and then applying it to my life. That's the application mentality that is so widespread and conventional in today's church. And in my books, I poke at this and try to destroy its foundations as a, as a straw man, as a weak facsimile of the truth. And I compare this to an attachment mentality which is simply focusing on uh, things like John chapter 6 that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, where Jesus is saying to the crowds, if you want anything to do with me, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. That's attachment. That's saying, you consume me, you take me into yourself, and then I'm in you and you're in me. Or his comparison to the branch abiding in the vine, and how the, we are the branch, and we are a dying dead branch uh, unless we become grafted into and attached to a, a, the living vine who is him. And then we get the life of the vine flowing up through our branch, producing fruit. So this is the basic argument between application and attachment. And Kirk was saying that he, he feels a kindred connection to this. He believes it. He knows it's true in his own story. But then when he tries to live it out with his teenagers or talk about it with other ministry leaders... He gets a lot of pushback from other adults who feel sort of offended that he's ever even questioning this whole idea of uh, learning biblical principles and then applying them to your life. Isn't that exactly what Jesus 
taught, and actually it's not. There's very little evidence to say that this was Jesus' mindset, that uh, just teaching people principles and then asking them to apply them to their life, that you could find a few examples of some things that seem kind of like that, but mostly his teaching, uh, his transformational teaching, had nothing to do with that kind of pattern. He was trying to woo people into a deeper, more intimate attachment to him. And, and I'm recording this podcast, by the way, on Valentine's Day. So using the word woo is not a word I normally use in everyday life, but it seems appropriate today. And it's actually an accurate depiction of the ministry style of Jesus. He liked to woo people. He was not very successful at helping renovate the way people thought, to up until the very end, even the walk that he took with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, even until that point, it was very clear that those who knew him best and hung out with him the most still had very little understanding, very little knowledge base of what Jesus was trying to bring across, and yet they were deeply, intimately attached to him, so much so that they gave up their lives for him. So Jesus' endgame, his real mission, was attachment. So I'm talking to Kirk about this and trying to help—he was essentially asking me in his own kind of stumbly way, how do I defend this when I get in a conversation with somebody like this? And I said, I, I would land on John 6 and talk about how unique this is, that Jesus spends an entire chapter, an entire engagement, um, urging people to eat his body and drink his blood. What is Jesus trying to say? He's not trying to say, learn more. He's trying to say, attach more deeply to me. Immerse yourself in me. And then I said, and, and, and then I would talk about the vine and the branch. This is Jesus' standard for what he's after in his ministry. He wants branches that willingly, eagerly, hungrily attach themselves to his vine. That's what they want. So this is a heart process not a head process. It doesn't mean the head isn't important and doesn't play a role in this and, and so forth, but the focus really for Jesus here is on deeper attachment. This is why, again, uh, I'll say this for maybe the thousandth time, my favorite part of the entire Bible is John chapter 6, and the end of that chapter is Peter responding to Jesus when Jesus says, are you all going to leave too because all these people left because of how offensive I was about eating my body and drinking my blood? Are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else would I go? This is the proclamation of a pig, someone who is ruined by Jesus and ruined for Jesus, who doesn't understand everything, in fact, maybe understands very little, but what they do know is they can't stop thinking about Jesus. They can't stop the, the magnetic draw that they feel toward him. They can't imagine themselves apart from him. This is what Jesus wants first, to woo us into this kind of heart attachment to him. And once that's there, he buys the time that he needs to help us to understand things. Uh, we get it wrong in the church today. We ask people to understand everything first and then hope that the heart attachment comes later. Jesus was exactly opposite. He wooed people into a heart attachment and then helped them understand things over the whole course of their life, because these things are not easy to understand. Case in point, one of my favorite all-time films is called Arrival. It's kind of a science fiction film, but it's kind of a different kind of science fiction film. It's a film about the world in the future, when on a particular day at about 10 or 12 different locations around the Earth, at the same moment, these alien spaceships hover over these 12 different places in the world. They're all shaped the same way. They look like a kind of a half shell, and they hover about 100, 200 feet over the surface of the Earth, and they show up on the same day, and it's a shock to everyone around the world. What are these things here? Everyone quickly realizes these are alien ships of some kind. We don't know why they're here. Are they here to invade? Are they here to kill us all? What are they here for? So the whole film is a tense drama that involves people around the world trying to figure out what these aliens want. Why are they here? I love this film because of that question that underlies the tension between the human beings and the aliens who've arrived on Earth. 
Why are they here? Because why are you here gets at the core issue of are you good or not? Are your intentions good toward us? The question, why are you here, is really trying to get at the heart of the matter. The heart is what determines why they're there, right? So this film does a brilliant job of showing what it would feel like and and what the experience would be like if human beings met alien beings who were fundamentally different than the linear time-based reality that we live in. Most sci-fi films, when they depict aliens, just depict monstrous versions of humans. In this film, Arrival, they depict aliens. Now, they do look somewhat monstrous, but that's not the point. The point is that they're fundamentally, profoundly different than human beings in the way they think and communicate. And the film does this incredible job of showing what that would feel like if you tried to communicate with a being that is completely other than a human being. I love this film. We've shown it in our small group for one of our film night to explore the otherness of God and how Jesus came to be the translator between the God who is completely other than us to human beings who struggle to understand that God. So this is how we use this film as a jumping jumping off point to talk about that. I thought it'd be interesting to listen to just a very brief minute and a half or so scene from the film where the human beings are now actually inside one of the spaceships, and they're viewing the aliens through a glass wall that the aliens have allowed them to come in, and they're attempting to find a communication path with them. So they have some linguist experts who are trying to communicate with these aliens and trying to figure out their language, which is completely different than human speech, down to its very core. So it's fascinating that the ways in which they try to, from the ground zero, figure out how to establish communication, because everything's riding on this because they don't know why these aliens are there. And some countries around the world assume they're there for nefarious reasons, and they want to launch an all-out war against these ships. And so these American linguists are racing against time to try to figure out why these beings are here, and the only way they can do that is to establish communication with them. So we're going to pick this up, this little scene, with a narrator explaining the challenges that human beings have when they are trying to answer this question with an entity that's completely other than them. So let's let's listen to this little section. Unlike all written human languages, their writing is semi-graphic. It conveys meaning. It doesn't represent sound. Perhaps they view our form of writing as a wasted opportunity, passing up a second communications channel. We have our friends in Pakistan to thank for their study of how heptapods write. Because unlike speech, a logogram is free of time. Like their ship or their bodies, their written language has no forward or backward direction. Linguists call this nonlinear orthography, which raises the question, is this how they think? Imagine you wanted to write a sentence using two hands starting from either side. You would have to know each word you wanted to use as well as how much space that it would occupy. A heptapod can write a complex sentence in two seconds, effortlessly. It's taken us a month to make the simplest reply. All right, I highly recommend watching the whole film. You can start to see some of the difficulties that facing us as human beings trying to understand in a knowledge-based way every aspect of a being who is completely other than us and God says over and over again, my ways aren't your ways, and uh, listen to my son. He will show you everything you need to know about who I am. I, I love what Brennan Manning says in his book, Ruthless Trust. He says, uh, we, can, we can't learn anything about 
Jesus from what we think we know about God. <laughs> but we have to learn everything about God from what we know about Jesus. So what he's really saying is that Jesus was uh, given to us as a gift to translate the very heart of God to us so that as we pay more ridiculous attention to Jesus, we understand the God who is other than us, and, and we understand him in, in every way that we need to. But if we make knowledge of God our primary entry point into our commitment to him, we've set ourselves a bar that's too high to get over. Jesus first wants to capture us, capture us with the heart of God, because once we're captured by the heart of God, the knowledge of God can follow up from there. So watch the film, watch it with a group of people, and talk about some of these issues after you've watched the film. It's, it's fantastic. And I wanted to bring up a second film as well in this whole mindset of the heart over the head. Here's a flawed film that has some moments of incredible beauty in it. It's called The Horse Whisperer. It's a film from about 15, maybe 20 years ago. It stars Robert Redford. He is a cowboy whose name is Tom Booker, who is single and alone, but his he, he lives on a ranch, and he's world-renowned for his ability to renovate and rescue and restore horses who've been traumatized. They call him the horse whisperer because his acute attention to detail with horses and his ridiculous paying attention to them allows him to move and establish deep connection with these traumatized horses and eventually restore their trust. So he's world-renowned for this, and the story of the horse whisperer is a young teenage girl who's 15 who is riding her horse with one of her friends on the East Coast in some of the wooded area near her home. They accidentally come out onto a logging road, and a huge semi-truck full of logs runs into them, and it kills her friend. And Grace, the girl in the story, is so injured she has to have one of her legs amputated, and her horse, whose name is Pilgrim, is horribly disfigured as well. And it's a tragedy. It's a trauma. And the mother of Grace is struggling to try to rescue her from the dark hole she's descended into now that she's lost her best friend and she's had her leg amputated and her horse is so traumatized, cannot be ridden anymore. It's, it's a crisis in the family. And Pilgrim the horse is so non-functional and so lashes out in fear and anger whenever anyone tries to get near him that the horse's trainers have said, the horse is going to have to be put down. Well, this would be just another blow for Grace. So her mom decides to pack up Grace and pack up Pilgrim the horse and travel cross-country to Montana and convince Tom Booker to take on this damaged horse. And to do that, they have to live on his ranch. So they do travel cross-country. They do convince him to do this. They live on his ranch for some time. And what happens in the story is this beautiful parallel story of Tom Booker sort of rescuing Pilgrim from his own captivity to pain and trauma, while he also rescues Grace from the same thing. Grace comes alive again as Pilgrim comes alive. It's a profound film, but it has its flaws. You'll see what I mean if, you've, if you watch it. But this broken, panicked, and untrusting horse is a metaphor for the broken, panicked, and untrusting girl that's in front of him as well. And what do they need most? What unlocks their ability to trust again? What does Tom Booker do that allows a path toward redemption for both? Well, there is a powerful scene in this film where early on Tom Booker is trying to reach Pilgrim, and Pilgrim is violent. He's scary to be around. He could easily hurt or kill someone by the way that he's lashing out. So Tom is beginning to work with this horse— and just beginning to establish some kind of connection, and he's in a corral with this horse, and Grace and her mom are outside the corral watching what he's doing, and the horse panics and goes crazy and knocks Tom Booker to the ground and then jumps over the corral fencing and races off into this vast Montana meadow. And the Grace and her mom are horrified. I mean, will they ever see Pilgrim again? 
And they're also horrified because they don't know if Tom Booker has been injured in this encounter. Well, Tom Booker, the, the reason the horse panics, by the way, is the mom's cell phone goes off in the middle of what he's trying to do, and it startles the horse and taps into his trauma. So Tom glances over at the mother in a kind of a withering way, like, you know, mute your cell phone. And then he simply, without saying a word, walks out of the corral and walks into the meadow. He doesn't talk to anyone. He just starts walking. And you don't know what he's doing. And in this incredible scene, it's about five minutes long in the film, Tom Booker walks into the middle of this meadow um, far enough so that the horse, who's just a, almost a distant dot in the meadow at this point, can see that there's a person there in the meadow. And then Tom, when the horse begins to back up, even though he's so far away, Tom stops and he squats down in the waving grass of this meadow and he just stares at the horse. And you think, well, how long is this going to go on? Well, the scene takes you through the entire day. Tom Booker sits in this field without saying a word, just with his eyes locked on this horse's eyes so far away. And by dusk, this horse has slowly started to move toward Tom and ever so painstakingly slowly has wandered his way back to finally allowing himself to get close enough that Tom strokes his nose. And when he strokes his nose, he puts his arm around his neck and puts a rope around his neck and slowly leads him back back to the ranch. This scene is extraordinary because, to me, it's one of the most profound scenes of pursuit I've ever seen. And you think of pursuit as somebody actively running toward something, like in the parable of the prodigal son, the father runs toward his son. In this case, the pursuit is the pursuit of pain incredible attention to this horse and proving to this horse, I am trustworthy. I'm not going to move toward you until you're ready to move toward me. And I will stay here forever. I'll stay here all night if I have to, but I'm not leaving you. And the horse somehow senses that Tom can be trusted because of the extraordinary investment he makes in pursuing him. So trust is really God's end game. And he can't win our trust by simply winning our head. I hope that makes sense. Trust can only be established when he wins our heart. So his mission, I've got to win their heart. So let's explore now a pivotal chapter in one of Paul's letters. This one is to the Jesus followers in Philippi. It's in what we now call chapter 3 of the book of Philippians. But really, it's important always to remember that these epistles, these books that Paul wrote, weren't books, they were letters. They were letters to people who were following Jesus in the churches he'd established around that area of the Middle East. I want to read most of chapter 3 of Philippians, and the reason I want to read this is that embedded in, in what Paul is about to say is the template for why Jesus pursues the heart over the head. So, Let's go ahead and read this, and then we'll stop and talk about this for a second. In my Jesus-centered Bible, this section of Philippians 3, the header over it, uh, I just love this, it's, it's called The Priceless Value of Knowing Christ. So here's how we start. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Remember he said this. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Paul is saying, look, I'm saying don't put any confidence in trying harder to be better, or don't even put more confidence in the, the greatness of your knowledge. And if anyone could do that, I could. I'm extraordinary in this arena. And here's what he says. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. 
I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without a fault. Now, this is Paul's pedigree. This is his head-over-the-heart pursuit of God, his academic pursuit of God, his try-harder-to-get-better-and-follow-all-the-rules pursuit of God. He, above all others, was excellent at this. He was the shining example of someone who was successful in carrying all of this out. He was at the top of his game. And what does Paul say about all that now that he has come to know the heart of Jesus? Here's what he says. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, he's using the word knowing here, not in a head way. He's using the word knowing in a heart way. He continues, For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Later on in this chapter, I won't read all the rest of it, but later on he says this one last thing. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. So what Paul is saying here when he says, pattern your life after mine, he's saying, look, um, if you want to talk about trying harder to be better, if you want to talk about a knowledge base of God, if you want to talk about someone who not only understood some things about God, but then applied them to to his life, I'm it. There has never been a better understand and apply person than me. I'm, I'm, I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. My rabbi was Gamaliel, the, the greatest rabbi in the history of the world. Um, and not only was I knowledgeable, I was infamous for the way I applied that knowledge in persecuting the followers of Jesus. If you want to talk about try harder to get better, you got nothing on me. But when I consider all of that, and I look at it now, the very things that you might look at as the pinnacle of success, the pathway to happiness, I look at all of that and it looks like garbage to me. It'd be interesting, I didn't do this, but it'd be interesting to look into what word he used for garbage here. I have a suspicion it might be stronger than the word we translate as garbage. I have a suspicion he might have said something that was even more, well, lightning bolt-like when he says, I count all of that as garbage. Why? Because what he really wants is he wants to gain Jesus and become one with him. Think about what Paul's saying. He doesn't want a head-based, obedience-based, tips and techniques-based, understand and apply-based relationship. All of that looks like trash to him now. What he really wants is oneness with Jesus. He wants relational intimacy with him. And that only comes through the heart. A couple of episodes ago, we did an episode called Knocked Off Your Donkey. It was Paul's experience of being called out of this life directly by Jesus, by being knocked off his donkey and blinded, and Jesus speaking directly to him. And Jesus' declaration to Saul was heart-based. Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's why are you breaking my heart? Why are you harming me? So Jesus' first engagement with Saul was to establish the relationship on a heart basis. Not, Paul, you're thinking all wrong here. Let me explain to you what the truth is. No, it was, why are you harming me in this way? Why are you hurting our relationship in this way? So Paul's transformation comes through the heart, not the head. Jesus didn't... um, renovate his thinking, Jesus renovated his heart. And so when Paul says, brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine, he's really saying, lay down your own garbage, 
Stop treating your head-based understand and apply life as if it was treasure when it's not. It's really garbage compared to the beauty of what he calls the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's not saying the infinite value of knowing about him and understanding all of his principles and truths. He's saying there's an infinite value in knowing Jesus directly. So what exactly has caused Paul to discard everything that wants to find him, everything that looks so beautiful and compelling to him, everything that once was so beautiful to him, what is causing him to now call that stuff garbage? Well, I thought we'd try a short experiment here to just skip around in the Gospel of John to random Scripture passages. Literally, I'm just going to flip open my Bible and point. So this will be a risk and experiment for me, but all I want to do is land on some things that reveal the extraordinary heart of Jesus, the magnetic beauty of Jesus, the ways in which Jesus relates with people that is primarily designed to woo them, not to renovate their knowledge. So I thought we could just randomly flip through the Gospel of John. I'm going to plant my finger down here, and I'll see what I find, and then I'll, in the moment, try to point out what I see Jesus is doing. So the first place I pointed to is in um, John chapter 8. I pointed to verse 21, and uh, here Jesus is with, it looks like he's, he's with people, teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury. And it says here in verse 20, he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. So he's still there in this setting, surrounded by people and also Pharisees and teachers of the law. And here's what it says. Later, Jesus said to them again, I'm going away. You will search for me, but will die in your sin. You cannot come where I'm going. And the people asked, is he planning to commit suicide? What the heck does he mean? You cannot come where I'm going. Jesus continued, you are from below. I'm from above. You belong to this world. I do not. That is why I said that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Well, who are you? They demanded. Jesus replied, the one I have always claimed to be. I have much to say to you and much to condemn, but I won't. For I say only what I have heard from the one who sent me, and he is completely truthful. Now think about this. Put yourself in the shoes of these people who are listening to this guy, who they assume must be a pretty hot rock star rabbi, um, a guy that really is creating a buzz. Except when you start to listen to him and what he's saying, he says the most extraordinary, upending, mysterious, intriguing things. I'm going away. You'll search for me, but will die in your sin. You can't come where I'm going. Think about how mysterious Jesus is here when he's saying these things to, his, to these people, and think about what it means to woo someone. So if you have a spouse or a significant other, think about what first drew you to that person. What first drew you to that person is, there's something different about this person. There's something magnetic about this person. There's something that draws me to want to know this person more deeply. I'm yet, I've met a lot of people in my life, but there's something different about this person. And then think about what Jesus is doing here. He's not explaining himself. He's making some declarations, but he's showing himself in a declarative way. You're from below. I'm from above. What? What does that mean exactly? What do you mean you're from above? Do you see how he's snagging their curiosity, beginning to woo their hearts more than their head? He's not explaining himself, and then he goes on to say, you belong to this world, but I don't. What? Aren't you Jesus from Nazareth? Why are you saying these things? Jesus here is slippery. He's intentionally mysterious. He's intentionally trying to capture their curiosity in their heart. So let's skip around again to another place. Okay, I'm just going to close my eyes and flip. Um, let's see. I flipped to John chapter 12, and I'm going to start with verse 20. I'm just going to read. Uh, this little section is called, Jesus Predicts His Death. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they said, Sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. And Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. 
but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Let's just stop right there. Okay, uh, Jesus, we just came to ask you if you would meet with these Greeks who've come to Jerusalem for Passover, and they said they want to meet you. Uh, I don't know, did you, did you miss the question we asked you? Like, would you meet with these guys? Because what Jesus says is nothing about whether he will meet with these guys. Instead, what he says is, look, guys, it's about time for me to enter my glory. What? what? Again, what are you talking about? And then he says this, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. Why will you guys follow me? Why do I want you to follow me? Not because I want you to rigidly follow the rules that I set forth for you. That's not the following I want. I want you to follow me because I want you to be where I am. Do you hear his heart in this? Him wooing them. I don't want you to follow a system as I leave this place because to die means to produce life in you. I don't want you to follow a system after I'm gone. I want you to follow me because I want you to be where I am, and I want to be where you are. He wants something other than a mitigated system of religious rules that allow us to live a better life. He wants something much more than that. He's wooing them. Let me do this one more time. Let me flip backwards, since I'm getting a little late in John. Oh, I flipped to John chapter 4, and I'm right in the middle of his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. So let me just read this little section, and we'll make this our last one. So it starts in verse 11, it looks like here. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? Because Jesus said, if you only knew the gift of God who you're speaking to, you would ask me, and I'd give you living water. So that's what she's referencing. And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And here's Jesus' response. Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring from within them, giving them eternal life. This has nothing to do with increasing this woman's knowledge of biblical truth or the Torah or the law of God. What he's really saying is, the living water I'm offering you is something you drink into yourself, and I am that water. I'm inviting you to drink me, to consume me, to let me be inside you. Again, what Jesus is doing here, in honor of Valentine's Day, is wooing this woman. And that's exactly what happens. She becomes fascinated with him, not because he has taught her all kinds of new principles. No, she is captured by him because she's mesmerized by the way he interacts with her. He is surprising, he is profound, he is blunt, and at the core of it, he's inviting, inviting into something way beyond the head, inviting her into something intimate. So I could go on and on. All I have to do is randomly choose places throughout the Gospels, and you would see examples of why Paul ends up saying, all of this head-based life I used to live, it's just a bunch of garbage <laughs> compared to what I have now, which is intimacy with Jesus himself. There is nothing like it. So Jesus invites us to immerse ourselves in him, and his point is, his end game is, again, to win our trust. And when he has our trust, this is really what transforms us. If he can miraculously move toward us in such a way that we, as the panicked, fearful, protective, controlling horse who's been traumatized and doesn't feel like we can ever really let somebody in that deeply again because the pain is too great, 
How could I ever trust someone again? What Jesus is inviting us into is a a sort of a standoff in the meadow, where we stand way back from him, and metaphorically, standing way back from him means, I'm going to follow your principles and apply them to my life, because that allows me to stay way away from you and never have to really relate to you. Yes, I'll follow your commands as long as I can stand back here. And instead, in this scene from The Horse Whisperer, Tom Booker refuses to accept that kind of relationship, and he waits and waits until the glimmer of trust starts to flash through that horse's mind, and the horse begins to take tiny little baby steps of risk and walk toward Tom Booker and eventually trust him so well that he'll allow himself to be touched again, to be touched and stroked on the head. And the end of that story is quite profound, the reclamation of pilgrim, the reclamation of grace, but it is a reclamation of trust. And trust in this story and in the story of Jesus is truly what transforms us. Why? Well, he's not really interested in our circumstantial hope, meaning it looks like in the story of the horse whisperer and the story of Jesus when he's healing people, for instance, that what people most want is for their terrible situation to, to be rectified, to be transformed. And that's true. That's human. All of us as human beings want circumstantial hope. We want whatever hard situation we're in to end, or whatever threatening shadow that uh, has drifted over our life to go away and be replaced by the sun. This is what we deeply want as human beings. And Jesus recognizes that, and it's not that he's averse to addressing our circumstantial hope, but he has bigger fish to fry. He wants to establish a much, much deeper hope, one that's based on our deep trust that comes only through our tasting and seeing that his heart is good. It only comes through our experience of Jesus as good. And all of these encounters I just read, and what Paul is talking about in Philippians 3, is experiencing Jesus in such a way that you taste his goodness and attach yourself to him because you can't help yourself now. So when we trust, we open ourselves and are vulnerable. That's what trust does. It relaxes the defenses. It walks from a uh, half a mile away in the meadow back into the presence of our good God. We walk ourselves of our own volition because we start to trust him. So trust opens ourselves to vulnerability. And when we're vulnerable, we make ourselves like clay. And when we're like clay, we can be molded. Now, if we are stiff and untrusting, we simply can't be molded. We're hardened clay. And you can see in Jesus' interactions with Paul and Peter and anyone who follows him that Jesus' intention is always to put us in a position of trust. Because if he can get us to this miraculous place, well, we will walk back and allow our nose to be stroked and a rope to be put around our neck and eventually to be ridden. If we will get back to this place of miraculous trust, then he can actually transform us from broken and destroyed and locked in our trauma to freedom. Trust really is the portal into freedom. And when we offer him our trust from our heart, we get to experience his heart. That's the doorway we walk through. So today, how do you trust? What are the little baby steps you can take? It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's not complicated, but I'm not saying it's easy, because just like that broken, traumatized horse, we've been through a lot, and we have every reason not to trust. So what can move you back toward him? to the extent that in the end you trust yourself at a level you never thought was possible, you trust him at a level you never thought was possible. Well, simply, when I think about this path for myself, it means seeking him always in the midst of your life, not excluding him, not looking away from the man staring at you, waiting for you in the big meadow, but to turn your attention, to lock eyes on him, to pay attention to him, I guess another is another way of saying it, to simply start paying more attention to Jesus and his heart, seeking him first, including him first, 
So whatever stresses and decisions and anxieties and opportunities and joys and heartbreaks you have, that you're consciously pausing just ever so slightly to invite him into it as well. I was talking to my daughter today, who's up at college, um, and she's was struggling with something, and I just reminded her, it is good to stop, and instead of just muscling through whatever you feel like you got to muscle through, invite his participation in what you're doing, just consciously, out loud if you can, invite Jesus to come into your situation and be a companion with you, or to speak back to you what you need to know, or to reflect back to you who you really are in that moment, or to surface the maybe the false or destructive narrative that you are locked into in that moment. Show me what it is, and then show me your truth. I was talking to a teenager the other night, and she was talking about this, you know, seeking him first, meaning that she translated it to mean reminding herself of God's promises and reminding herself of what Jesus has said is the truth. And I said, yes, those things are fine, but they're still under your control. I'm inviting you to invite Jesus experientially, directly, to, in the moment, speak to you, reflect back to you, show you himself, and then by nature also show you yourself in that moment. It's a simple act of invitation. This is not working harder to do anything. It's simply inviting him in. And then you act on uh, whatever it is that he's shown you. You do something to make it real. Instead of keeping it in your head as a thought, you translate it into action, where it becomes real. And that may mean that if you've been wrestling with something and part of it has been you're afraid to talk to somebody about something— and you're trying to muscle your way around it and through it, and you stop to invite Jesus into that decision, and he nudges you and prompts you and says, it's obvious what you need to do, I will be with you, that instead of carrying that as a thought, you translate that to your heart, and you act on it. You do something that makes it real. So this progression is to seek him, include him, and then act on whatever it is he said, to make it real and not just locked up in your head. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening, gang. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail on PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com, we'll have links to the two films I mentioned here today and to the Jesus Center Bible and other stuff on there. So please head on over there. You, uh, what you'll need to do is find our podcast section there, and you'll, you're looking for Season 4, Episode 6. So this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk to you again next episode with Becky Nader. 